Bibles, let's go to the book of Mark chapter 11. Book of Mark chapter 11. Thank you to our praise team, our musicians, media sound, everybody that shows up here early to make sure that everything is flowing well uh, and going as it needs to go for service to happen. Thank you. Today is Palm Sunday, what we often call triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He came to earth to save us. He came to deliver us. And he came to fulfill the long-awaited promise that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would show up one day. This is the path that led to the cross. Jesus knew the end was near. The finality of Friday was getting close. He had already read the last chapter before it was written and heard the final chorus before it was sung. As a result, the critical filtered from the casual, distilled truce, taught deliberate deeds done each step calculated and every act premeditated one writer set the stage for this event by saying it's early in the final week the props and players for friday's drama are in position six inch spikes are in the bin a cross beam leans against a shed wall thorn limbs are wrapped around a trellis awaiting the weaving of a soldier's hand the participants are nearing the stage. Pilate is concerned about the number of Passover pilgrims. Annas and Caiaphas are restless over a volatile Nazarene. Judas views his master with evasive eyes and a centurion is available awaiting the next set of crucifixions. Players and props, only this is no play. It's a divine plan, a plan that Begin before Adam felt heaven's breath and now all heaven awaits and watches all eyes are on one figure the Nazarene Jesus Com commonly clad uncommonly focused he's leaving Jericho and walking toward Jerusalem he doesn't chatter and he doesn't pause because he's on a journey what would be his final journey and even the angels are silent because they know this is no ordinary walk for the door to eternity is hinged on this week. So let's walk with him in Mark chapter 11. When they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples, saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, Whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say you that the Lord hath need of him. And straight away he will send him hither. Don't you love the KJV? Hither and thither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door. Without in a place where two ways met. And they loose him. And a certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do you what are you doing 
loosing the colt. And they said unto them, even as Jesus has commanded, and they let him go. They said, Jesus told us to come get him. They let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he set upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way, strove them in the way. And they went before, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Up to this point, Jesus would perform a miracle, but he would tell people, don't tell anybody what I did. My time hasn't come yet. But when you get to this passage of Scripture, Jesus takes center stage. And that's what I want to preach to you for the next little while. Take center stage. Take center stage. God's not calling us on this Palm Sunday to just hide in the shadows. God is calling us to take center stage and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save me. Anybody still excited about your salvation? Thank you, God, for your power, your anointing. Thank you for these great people. Let your word go forward. Let it find good ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Someone shout amen. You may be seated. Give the Lord another hand clap of praise. I'm a basketball fanatic and purist. I love the game even though it doesn't love me back anymore. For example, I played in a coach's game last Saturday that we did win, of course. Shout out to Paul Hoyt for hitting six threes during that game. Six of them. I hit one, but I shot 45, but it was, it was a good day. But I had a good time during that coach's game, and, and I woke up Sunday morning, and I couldn't walk because my knee was swollen up, and that led to a Tuesday doctor visit to where... <laughs> Had to get some fluid drained off my knee because I was in bad shape. So I love the game of basketball. Yet, with all these aches and pains and me getting older, I, I still love the game. With everything going on in my life, I'm 39 now. My body isn't getting any younger. I still love to play the game, and I enjoy watching the game. And if you're a basketball enthusiast, you know what the month of March means to basketball fans. It's a dream come true for people who love the game of basketball. It's a month they call March Madness. And the excitement revolves around an NCAA Division I single elimination basketball tournament where 68 teams compete in seven rounds for the national championship. Eventually dwindling down to four teams and then finally a champion is crowned. It's the biggest basketball stage in the world. 67 games in 18 days. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how big my knee would be swollen up if I played that much basketball? It's hysteria. It's madness. People, people go crazy over it. Now, I've never personally been to one of these events, but I've read that you can feel the electricity in the air. The atmosphere is different than a regular basketball game. And there's a little extra bounce in the players' walk as the university band strike, strikes up an exciting version of the team fight song. And a light show flashes all across the auditorium, building anticipation and setting the stage for something special to happen. And it does. Something special happens every year. They have what is called Cinderella's. Anybody ever heard of that? Cinderella doesn't get an invite to the ball. 
She's not supposed to be there. And these small schools are called Cinderella's. They're massive underdogs. And many don't even pick them to win. But without fail, every year, one of these Cinderella teams takes center stage. And they shock the world. This year, number 14 seed, Abilene Christian, has only 4,000 students. But it upset the number three seed, Texas, who has approximately 60,000 students enrolled at their school. You know how much they made for that upset for the school? Over $100 million. Sign me up. We'll upset somebody. For $100 million, I think I can beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. <laughs> Throw it on the table. It wasn't the only upset. Oral Roberts University, a number 15 seed, upset the number two seed, Ohio State Buckeyes. But we expect that out of Ohio State. Now, this is what gets me. As a basketball purist, I know that during the regular season, you can take these same teams in the regular season and put them in a 10-game series, and the bigger schools are going to win 10 out of 10 times. But there's something about the stage of March Madness when the lights are the brightest and the stage is set that these underdogs come out of the shadows. They answer the call to take center stage, and they shock the world. And God began to speak to me this week through March Madness. Showing me that the impossible odds always sets the stage for astounding miracles. And I can sense the call of God in my spirit today. I didn't come to preach to you about a basketball tournament. But I've come to tell you that the stage has been set for the church to have the greatest revival that it's ever had. Come on. And God is calling us to step out of the shadows and take center stage. It's an invitation. I can hear the call of God. An invitation to experience an outpouring that this world has never seen. The former and the latter reign together. And God has already set the stage. Think about everything that has happened. A pandemic. There's been chaos. There's been rumors of war. There's been a, a literally a plague of pollen. Has anybody else noticed it but me? This ain't normal pollen. This is a plague of pollen. Went to the doctor and, and, and the nurse said, she said, yeah, I walked out of my house the other day. And by the time I got to my car, from my knee down was covered in yellow pollen. This is not normal. There's political upheaval. There's all kind of things going on around us. But what if I told you that God has used all of this to set the stage for him to bring sinners back to the cross and bring them to an upper room to where God can fill them. I would have never, I'm just being honest. I'm a, very, I'm a very, very cynical person and you can call it pride, but I don't know if I'd have ever preached on Facebook before the pandemic. You know why? Because I don't know if I can take red faces. I don't know. And then I, find, I found out that people accidentally hit red faces. They don't even mean to send one. My aunt the other day put a red face on one of our videos. I had my mom call her and ask her why. <laughs> she said, oh, I didn't even know I did that. Well, go take it off. I don't know if I'd have ever preached on Facebook because I, I don't know if I can take its open comments. I don't know if I can take the ridicule. I'm just being honest and open today. But when the pandemic hit, I didn't have any other choice but to step on Facebook and preach and ignore the negativity so that God can do something great. 
So what if I told you that the pandemic pulled me out of the shadows and it put me on a stage and God says, show them me and show them my love and give them my word. It's the stage. Everything, everything that has happened has pointed to this moment where we are today. And, and, and can I be honest? And I'm not trying to be offensive. There's no such thing as a secret agent Christian. If you're hiding out saying I'm a Christian, there's no such thing. The Bible says we are to be light to the world. A town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. We are to be a light in the midst of darkness. God is calling us to step to center stage and say, I have what you need. This is key because amid the chaos... We see in the world today the political conflicts and rumors of war that Jesus foretold about. He predicted that many of us will become alarmed. And we are. We're alarmed. I'm alarmed. You're alarmed. Everybody's alarmed. Here an alarm. There an alarm. Everywhere an alarm. Alarm. They're everywhere. <laughs> and old McDonald had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. Everybody's alarmed. Everybody. Everywhere you go, what are we going to do? What? What? Everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere there's rumors of war and everywhere there's pestilence and everywhere there's sickness and, and, and everybody's alarmed. But Jesus said this. He said, when, when you see all this going on, don't be alarmed because it's not the end yet. You know why? He said, all this is just setting the stage for the end time, but it's not the end yet because something has to happen before Jesus comes back. Do you know what has to happen? Acts 2 and 17. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith the Lord, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. The stage has been set for something supernatural and spectacular to happen. Revival is in the air and anticipation is building Thursday night. I showed up in this building. I wasn't here for the service. I didn't preach. I didn't say a word. I actually showed up late. I did what a lot of my church members do. I showed up late. <laughs> and I walked in. And when I walked in, there was 84 people in this building. And there was recovering drug addicts kneeled across its altar seeking God. Now, you, you didn't hear what I said. There was recovering drug addicts that were laid on their face seeking for God to give them power from on high. And I stayed around to watch on a Thursday night when the church wasn't full. When you wasn't here. A lot of you, some of you may have been here. A lot of you weren't. But I showed up to watch seven people go down in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Come on, somebody. I'm talking about revival being in the air. You know what? Today we have seven more people scheduled to be baptized. We've already seen 15 people filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Revival is in the air. And it's time to rise up and take center stage. The days of allowing our excuses to hold us back are over. They've got to be. The world is poised for a new kind of leader to emerge. Not perfect leaders, but underdog leaders. Men and women who understand their humanity. They know the excuses, but they, they choose to make a difference anyway. You, you hear me today? You have biblical permission to believe that God can use you. Because the word of God is full of underdogs who took center stage and did extraordinary things. Moses and Esther and Samuel and Joseph and Paul, the apostle and even James. 
They didn't focus on the odds that were against them. They focused on the God that was for them. And when we stop seeing everything against us and we lift our eyes to the hills and see the God that is for us, there is no telling what God will do with our lives. An archaeologist was digging in the the Gab Desert in Israel and came upon a casket containing a mummy. After examining the casket or the mummy, he called the curator of a prestigious natural history museum and said, I've just discovered a 3,000-year-old mummy of a man who died of heart failure. The curator replied, bring him in and we'll check him out. A week later, the amazed curator called the archaeologist and said, you were right about the mummy's age and cause of death. How in the world did you know that he died of a heart attack? The archaeologist said, easy. There was a piece of paper in his hand that said 10,000 shekels on Goliath. Some of you need to, needs to give the enemy a heart attack today because he has bet against you. He has told you you can't be a soul winner. You can't be a revivalist. You'll never be an overcomer. Listen to me. David was armed more than just a slingshot and some smooth stones. David had God on, him, on his side. And when you have God on your side, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Listen, I get it. Your Goliath doesn't carry a sword or a shield. Instead, he brandishes blades of abandonment, abuse, insecurity, depression, and addiction. And you know well the roar of Goliath. But God has sent me here to tell you today. You need to come out of the shadows. You need to lift your eyes. Because you are a giant slayer. And you need to shake the enemy to his core. Some of you need to make, needs to make a liar out of the enemy. He counted you out and tried to silence you. But here you are today. Come on. I've come to prophesy that God has given you a center stage. The stage is set in Mark 11 for something special to happen. There's fervor and excitement. It's not a March Madness basketball tournament, but it's, there's so much excitement that Jesus has built. For three years, Jesus has been building his ministry toward this day. For three years, he has performed one miracle after another. For three years, he has healed the sick, the lame, and the blind. For three years, Jesus has, has taught these crowds about the coming of his kingdom and and and. and not more than about a week before this, he goes to the home of Mary and Martha and raises their brother Lazarus from the dead. So by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the crowd is primed and ready. Multitudes and miracles, Brother Michael, they are ready for Jesus to take center stage. This is the moment Jesus is about to take center stage as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Anointed One and the Promised Messiah, capable of feeding thousands, healing the wounded, and raising the dead. He checked every box. He fit the, 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 the mold to a T of the king that they wanted. But there was one problem. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted one who would sit upon the throne of David. But that would also lead them into battle against the Romans. And their stage didn't match his mission. Because Jesus would tell anyone that would listen. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said there's two realms that you live in. There's an earthly realm. And there's a heavenly realm. One realm you can see with your physical eyes. The other realm you have to see with your faith. And these two realms are connected. And constantly are working against each other. Let me take a time out and ask you the question. 
question, ma'am or sir. What realm are you empowering in your life? Does the earthly realm have more influence than the heavenly realm? I'm so focused on the earthly that I miss out on the heavenly. Jesus didn't own land. Did you hear what I just said? Talked to a pastor this week. He bought 70 acres. I said, what are you thinking? How are you going to upkeep 70 acres? I've got three, and I don't want to upkeep it now. Jesus didn't own any land. So when I retire, I'm not going to own any land. I'm going to go live where somebody else cuts the grass and pulls weeds. My wife says, what are we doing? Jesus didn't own any land. He, he didn't hold no office. He didn't have a position. He commanded no physical army, but he possessed all power in heaven and earth. Jesus was declaring that his kingdom is so vast that it does not fit in the realm of this world. And his angelic army is so big that a battle with Rome would have bored him. It wouldn't even have been a challenge because his power was so vast and great that it superseded. Anybody remember the dream of Nebuchadnezzar? It's where there was the 10-foot statue made of different metal with clay feet. And when Daniel interpreted it, it said that a rock that wasn't cut by human hands hit that 10-foot statue and it broke it to pieces. You know what, do you know what that, that rock that wasn't cut with human hands was? It's the kingdom of God. Do you know what the greatest force in the world is? It's not the United States of America. It's not Russia. Do you know what the greatest force in this world is? It's the church of the Most High God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of... It's time for us to take center stage. It's time for us to bow our shoulders up and say we were built for this. Christ's kingdom is a spiritually active kingdom. It's not an earthly active kingdom. That's why I can't be so persuaded by what's going on around me. I've got to be persuaded by what God's doing in me. It's a kingdom of power that gives us power to tread upon the enemy. It's authority to bind and loose. It's authority to lay hands on the sick. It's a prayer language that confuses the enemy and sets the captives free. Matthew 16 and 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can I tell you, Jesus didn't build a church that was safe and protected. We don't have a fence around us keeping people out. No, it's an open door. Whosoever will can come in. But God has called the church... To go to where the gates of hell are at. And to throw a rope to those that are lost. And to pull them out of damnation. He didn't call us to come sit on padded chairs. He didn't call us to come and just sit down in here and not do anything. He called us to be dangerous. He called us to bring the gospel to the lost. I want you to look at somebody and tell them every soul matters. Every soul matters. He said, my kingdom is not of this world because if it was of this world, it would be limited. But the kingdom I have is not limited. Listen, Jesus told his disciples that his kingdom was going to be different than earthly kingdoms. Because the kingdom of God isn't about authority and position. It's about ministry and souls. Listen, can I remind us today? Has anybody ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The Gospels, anybody? We all need to go back and reread it. You know why? Because it doesn't take long to realize what Jesus Christ is passionate about. He spoke about a lost sheep. He spoke about a lost coin. He spoke about a lost son. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. 
He proclaimed the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen to me. His kingdom is not about platforms, pulpits, microphones, instruments or positions. It's about the lost finding salvation. Let me ask you something, ma'am or sir. Do you smell like the field? Have you been out in the field saying, can I get another one? Can I find? one more can I find one I've been going to church every Sunday but on Monday can I find one more listen if you have the Holy Spirit but you don't have a witness give the Holy Spirit back that's like buying shoes but not walking anywhere Listen, if we're going to get the Holy Spirit and we're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to do what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. And it says you shall receive power to be witnesses. I've got a witness today that says I have change that can help somebody. When I walk into the atmosphere, the Holy Spirit ought to kick in and people ought to feel the tugging of what God. No man cometh unto the Father unless the Spirit. Listen, there is no boundaries. I, I love this place. I believe that God has called us to gather here. I believe that there's power here. I believe that there's anointing here. I believe that it's special. I do. I believe it's the river like we preached about last week. It's Ezekiel 47. There's nothing little. There's nothing small. It's powerful. But I want to remind you the kingdom doesn't stop here. He told us the kingdom is within you. Everywhere I go, the kingdom goes with me. Listen, I'm flying. I don't like to fly. I'm flying next Friday and Saturday and Sunday and preaching right by St. Louis. When I leave, Brother Michael, I don't leave the kingdom in tick fall. I take the kingdom everywhere I go. If I walk to the dollar store, walk in the dollar store, and I'm getting my Lucky Charms bars, my ice cream sandwiches, because my wife won't buy them. She says, we don't buy junk in this house. Oh, yeah? Listen. I go, to, I go to the dollar store, I'll come out with $100 worth of junk and got to hide it from my kids. Well, you, uh, you, you ever heard that song? He's a good, good father. I'm a cruel, cruel father. They ain't not getting none of my snacks. It's my snacks. But if I walk into that dollar store, the kingdom of God is within me. You hear me today? We need to get back to a place to where we change the places that we walk into. And Jesus flips the narrative in Mark 11. He's not going to ride into Jerusalem on a stallion saying, look at me. I've got power and authority and position. Look, look at me. Almighty Jesus. That's what a lot of people want, especially within the apostolic movement. They want position so that they can flaunt it in front of everybody. Look at me. Look, look at me. Look at me. R riding in here on keyboards and drums and... <laughs> None of that matters if the lost aren't being saved. He said, I'm not coming in on a stallion. Jesus said, I'm not a rock star. I'm not a pop star. This isn't new kids on the block. This isn't Bon Jovi. He said, I'm coming in. He said, when I come in, I'm riding on a colt. I'm riding, I'm riding in meek and gentle because I want the lost to feel that anybody can come unto me that is lost. 
You know why some people don't want what we got? Because we flaunt it in a way that it's so aggressive that, that they look at us and say, I can't get near to that because it's, it's too much for me. But Jesus said, when I'm around them, I want them to feel like they can sit at my table. I want them to feel my love and my compassion. He flipped the script. He said, I'm not riding in on a stallion. So as they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples to enter a village where he had a colt tied up waiting for this moment. The colt can't go backwards and the colt can't go forwards because destiny had him tied up waiting on the call of the king. Sometimes God will tie you up until the time is right. You hear me today, nothing will seem like it, it nothing will seem like it's working. It won't, it, it won't, you'll try to do something that ain't working, everything's broke down, everything's tied up, the finances are locked up, and you're asking God, what are you doing? And God said, I got you tied up for a divine moment. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Its owners likely had other plans for the cult. Maybe they intended to sell it when it was old enough to work, or maybe they intended to use it for themselves, but they had no idea that from the moment the colt was born, it had been set aside for the king. Something so mundane as a donkey. Eeyore. <laughs> had suddenly become one of the central characters in the greatest most important chapter of human history. It was raised for no other purpose than to take center stage with the king on its back. Let me preach to you for a moment. Your situation has you completely tied up, but God is getting ready to call you to center stage. Destiny, let me prophesy to somebody. Destiny and opportunity are about to collide, and the call of the master is getting ready to resonate in your ears because one divine moment orchestrated by the masters about to shift things that have taken you a lifetime to try and change your day of visitation is at hand and God has sent me here with a word for you loose you and let you go because God needs you to take center stage there are sinners and backsliders that are waiting on you to bring the king to where they are listen Jesus predicts opposition by saying if anybody tries to stop you tell them the Lord needs the cult if anybody tries to stop you, tell them the Lord needs the coat. The one who made it needs it. And their reply is going to be Jesus commanded us. And there was one that stood and asked. They said, what? Why are you loosening the coat? Where are you bringing it? And their reply was, Jesus commanded us. In other words, we're not operating in our own authority. We're operating in the name of Jesus and on his reputation. You please hear me today, ma'am or sir. If opposition shows up and tries to fight your calling, you need to battle it in the name of Jesus. When you say Jesus, demons tremble. When you say Jesus, witches fall back and hexes are broken and the enemy doesn't have any more power he's got to loose you and let you go look at somebody and say there's something about the name there's something about the name Jesus over my house Jesus over my family Jesus over my finances Jesus over my children Jesus over my community my deliverer God let let him go why are you loosing them the master has sent me and he sent me in his authority in his name the coal became an important part of the story when the master sat down on it. You got to get that. The colt's just a colt until the king sat down on it. 
And once again, I feel like the Lord is sending me here today to tell somebody he's getting ready to sit down on your situation. And when he sets down, things are going to begin to change. You know what's going to begin to change when he sets on our lives? Mark 16 and 17 happens. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Mark 16 and 19. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. And he sat on the right hand of God. Now watch this. There's only one throne. Revelations 4 and 2 tells us. Of John's vision and immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one set on the throne. When the Bible in Mark 16 is speaking of sitting on the right hand of God. It's not speaking of a physical position next to God. God's a spirit. He feels all time and space. He feels the universe. Rather sitting on the right hand of God is speaking about being in position of authority, salvation, righteousness, glory, strength, and power. He sits far above all authority, power, and dominion. Watch this. And I'm almost done. Musicians, you get ready. When he set, when his work on earth was done and he ascended and he set. At the right hand of God. When he sat, not, not, not physically, but when he sat as a symbol of authority and power. His work on earth was done, but he also empowered some people. Watch this. After he ascends and sits at the right hand of God, Mark 16 and 20 happens. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied him. Now, let me ask you this. How did they do it? How did all of a sudden these disciples go out and they're casting out demons and they're bringing the gospel and they're bringing the word? I can tell you there's a break between verse 16. I'm sorry, before between verse 19 and 20. And this is where that break. This is what happens in the midst of that break. Acts 2, 2 through 4. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it's sat. When Jesus sat at the right hand of God. Those disciples made their way to an upper room. And they sat in that upper room. And they tarried and they waited to be endued from power on, from on high. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance the same disciples that ran and hid when he was being crucified are now running through the streets saying you got to hear the gospel message you got to hear it because he sat on my life and when Jesus sets on our life things begin to change Jesus took center stage on the shoulders of an underdog. Something common and that was set aside for a special service. And the colt was tied up until now. And they untied the colt and the master sat on him. And when the master sat on him, the colt knew exactly what to do. It began to walk toward Jerusalem. As he approached approached Jerusalem the Bible says that he wept over the city why did he weep they were shouting and the master is weeping they were cheering and he was crying he wasn't on the cross yet there was no physical pain but he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem on the back of a colt and he's weeping 
He was crying because he knew they were celebrating the wrong thing. They thought he was coming to fix their agenda. But he was really coming to fix them. They thought he was coming to change the situation. But he was coming to change them. And when the king rode into the city in ancient times. They would usually enter Jerusalem with a mighty army bearing dazzling prizes for his royal treasury. But not Jesus. The gospel is on the back of a colt. And he's riding into Jerusalem with tears in his eyes. And they're lining the street with palm branches. And they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Do you know what that word Hosanna means? Oh Lord, save us. He rode into Jerusalem and they didn't even know what they were crying. They gathered around a king on a colt and they cried, Hosanna, save us. And God spoke to me and he said, the world is gathering around in 2021. And they're crying the same thing. That they cried on the road in Jerusalem. The world is crying out, save us. Save us. Save us. And I just came at 9 a.m. to remind you. that Church is not about me and it's not about even you. Church is about the salvation of everybody that is lost. And he's waiting on somebody to bring the king into the middle of a world that is crying, save us, save us, save us. It was 1854. Hosea Lewis was appointed lighthouse keeper in Lime Rock City in Newport, Rhode Island. Four months later, he moved his wife and his children to the small island in Newport Harbor. Lewis would suffer a stroke four years later at which time his teenage daughter Ida assumed responsibility. You could go back to that first picture for a second. This is it. This is the lighthouse. And we had a stroke. His daughter assumed responsibility of taking care of the lighthouse and being a keeper of the flame. Each day included climbing the tower. Go back to that next picture. Cleaning the reflectors, trimming the wick, and filling the oil reservoir at sunset and midnight, along with providing for her father's care. She had to take center stage because if she didn't, there would be nobody else to make sure there was light at the old lighthouse. With long and demanding tasks, Ida was unable to continue her schooling, but daily delivered her siblings to class. Whatever the weather, by rowing 500 yards. She had a rowboat. She rowed 500 yards to the mainland. And Ida became well-skilled and well-known for handling the heavy craft. And the teenager gained a measure of fame at age 16 when she rescued four young men. After their boat had capsized, she rowed to their aid, hearing their screams as they clung to the overturned craft. And she pulled them into her rowboat. And she rowed them to safety. March the 29th, 1869, Ida saved two drowning servicemen from nearby Fort Adams. 
public knowledge of Ida's courage spread as far as Washington, inspiring President Ulysses S. Grant to visit Ida at Newport later that year. Ida rescued another two soldiers in 1881 for which she was awarded the U.S. Life Saving Service's highest medal. In early February, though, of that year, there was two soldiers that was crossing from Newport to Lime Rock Island on foot when the ice gave away and they fell into the water. Thank God that Ida, the lighthouse keeper, was on guard. And she saw the men fall and she came running to them with a rope. As they plunged beneath the icy surface with no hope, ignoring peril to herself, she ran to the ice that rope beneath the surface of that water and those two drowning men were relieved when they saw the rope break beneath the surface and they grabbed a hold of it and Ida pulled them back to safety. Her last reported rescue came at age 63 when she saved a friend who had fallen into the water. All told, Ida Lewis personally saved at least 18 and as many as 25 people in the 39 years of keeping the light. She was asked, she said, Ida, where do you find your courage and your strength? You know what she said? I don't know. I ain't particularly strong. The Lord Almighty gives it to me when I need it. That's all. Sometimes I feel like that colt. Sometimes I feel all tied up. Today the master has sent me. And the rope that had me tied, he's put it in my hand. And he said, are you going to be a keeper of the light or are you going to take center stage? Because there's lost souls. Are we going to just keep singing louder? I heard a story, Jack Cunningham told it and I got to hurry. But he said that when the Holocaust was happening, that he was a part of a church that was right by the railroad tracks. And he said on Sunday the train would come by. And he said we would hear the screams of the Jewish people on that train that were being carried away to their death. And he said we couldn't handle the screams. So what we would do is we would turn the music up a little louder and sing a little louder to drown out. And this man, now old of age, looks at the minister and says, I have to repent every day for drowning out the sound <laughs> the people that were being killed. God, let me just get one. God, when I go to eternity, how many is going to be hanging on to the rope that I threw out, God? God, when I finally make it, how many... How many am I going to look back that I brought with me that were drowning in their condition? Ma'am or sir, can I remind you there is a heaven and there is a hell. And we don't have time to hide in the shadows. We've got to take center stage. How many, Brother Jeremy? Many. How many? But my, how many is hanging on you? We just come and preach on Sunday. That's what we do. We come and do a big expansion and fill up a building. Or every day, 
Am I throwing a rope out to somebody that's drowning in their condition and their addiction? Every day, am I... Am I reaching or do we come and sing louder? Let's have a move of God. Let's shout and dance. Listen, ma'am or sir, I love shouting and dancing. But I'm tired, of, I'm tired of shouting and dancing and people dying lost. My responsibility is to throw a rope for somebody to find the cross. I want to reach one. So we stand. Monday, let me find just one. On Tuesday, let me find just one. On Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, God, when I preach this gospel, let me find. You know what I'm doing? I'm, le- I'm letting it settle. Because if we can be honest today, we lost our burden for souls. But Jay, if we're not careful, this will become a production. But it's not. Like, you know what you should visualize every time you hit a cable... A key on that keyboard. You're throwing a rope. To somebody that walked in here today. And if we don't get them today. They could take their life tomorrow. Oh we forget about that huh. Oh we, we done got so saved and cleaned up. And we, we good man. I got my suit on. I didn't shine my shoes this morning. Set of drums, but Jerry, you play them. You can't play them as good as me, but you play them. But have you thought lately? I want it to sound good. We got that computer over there, and it keeps us on beat. But really, Brother Gerald, every time you hit that snare, Dev, hey, every time you turn on that computer for a minute, five minutes on Monday morning, and you don't feel like it, you go on there with a word, you're not riding in on a stallion, there's no production. Every time you do it, you're throwing a rope. For somebody with a needle in their hand that day, may it be about to shoot up because they don't feel like they have any hope left. 
Or we could keep singing a little louder to drown out the sound. The call of God. We're going down